go ahead and turn your Bibles to Genesis 13. We'll see if they can find the slides. Um, Genesis 13, as you're turning there, um, I want to share with you something that I was reminded of this past week, reading in a book written by a guy by the name of Paul Tripp. And in that book, he was talking about God's sovereignty. And God's sovereignty is simply the truth that God is in control of everything. And so Paul Tripp, as he's writing, he gets to application. And what are the implications of this reality that God is in control of everything? And the implications of this, oh, now that's distracting. Is there a way to, to blank that until you find it? Thank you. Squirrel. Oh, hey, you found it. Wonderful. Squirrel again. All right, let's see if I can, and maybe you get me the clicker because my device is just all confused by what happened. Oh, no, I got it. I got it. So, sovereignty, book, Paul Tripp, talking about the implications of the sovereignty of God. And, and one of the things that he says, he says, we as human beings tend to uh, function in, in two different categories. And he said, imagine it like two circles. You have an outer circle and an inner circle. And the outer circle is the circle of concern. And this, this would be the circle of our worries and our fears and our anxieties. The, and, and so we have this outer circle, circle of concern. And then we have the inner circle, which is the circle of responsibility. And what, what Tripp was saying was he, he tends to think that we as human beings spend a lot of our energy on the outer circle, the circle of concern, the circle of the anxieties, the circle of fear, the circle of, oh no. And he said, that circle there is all on God. Your circle is the circle of responsibility. And that circle is probably a lot smaller <laughs> than we tend to act. We tend to try to make that circle bigger in, in God's territory. I bring that up because I think that that's what we see in Abram and, and what we've seen so far with Abram. God calls Abram to leave the land, go to a new land, and when God promised to make, then God promised to make him a great nation. And Abram, he trusts the Lord and he picks up and travels to this new land of Canaan. But then his resolve dissipates when fear comes in, this, this test of, of poverty, I'll word it, famine has come to the land. <gasps> oh no, what do I got to do? And he's trying to figure out and he's trying to manage. The trial of poverty tests him. And I'm not going to go through the sermon, like I said, I'm not going to go through the sermon from last week. But I'll just say, if you weren't here last week, it might be beneficial for you to go online and see how Abram's weak faith was revealed, but also how God's mercy and grace was revealed as well. But now we come into this week, and this text in Genesis 13 seems to reveal that Abram learned some things from that Egypt episode. Through that previous trial, God removed some impurities in Abram's faith and led to an increase of Abram's trust in the Lord and I would also say Abram decreased in trusting himself. He learned, in other words, that his circle of responsibility was much smaller. And that he could be free to trust the Lord. 
Now, before we enter into the text today, you may have already picked up on the fact that we read again in the service today from Psalm 37, which we read from last week. And we're reading from this because it really does seem to coincide with at least this portion of Abram's life. Now, I want to remind us again of part of the text. The call of David as he writes this psalm is, trust the Lord, do good. Like when, we have, when we have these fears and anxieties, what's our responsibility? Our responsibility is, trust the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give the desires that align with his. He will give you the desires of your heart. So refrain from anger, forsake wrath, fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. Could you relate to Abraham's story last week for those of you who are here? Could you relate to Abraham? Are there areas in your life that you are trying to control even right now that really aren't your responsibility to control? Has God ever taught you, Christian, has God ever taught you the freedom of letting go and trusting that God is good and right even when things don't make sense? If you can relate to that kind of struggle, then you ought to be able to relate to this text today. And I, I would imagine that this text would be comforting and also challenging. So today we're going to see Abram is restored in certain ways in his faith and trust in the Lord. And that leads him to act in what I'm going to say are radical ways of trust and obedience. And so with that kind of understanding, I want to give to you the main idea today, which is faith rests us in the Lord and not merely on what our eyes can see. This is what I think Genesis 13 shows us. Faith rests us in the Lord and not merely on what our eyes can see. And we're going to start with that first part. Faith rests us in the Lord. So let's read verses 1 through 4. Look at your text. So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had and lot with him, into the Negeb. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold, and journeyed on from the Negeb as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at the first. And there Abram called upon the name of the Lord. So after the Egypt debacle and God rescues Sarai, Abram returns to the area of the, the land that was promised. And he first sojourns into the Negev area. But the verbiage here in the beginning of chapter 13 is very similar to the verbiage of the beginning of chapter 12 when God initially calls Abram out of the land. And you see here that Abram, he left his homeland in chapter 12, left his homeland and Lot went with him. And the same thing is happening here, that he leaves Egypt and Sarai and Lot go with him back up. Now, I just want to mention here, I think, that, I think that we should note this character Lot, even in chapter 12. God promises blessing to Abram, leave your family, leave these things. And it seems as though Lot also believes God because he goes with Abram. The scriptures tell us in the New Testament that Lot was righteous. 
And so I believe that Lot was exercising some degree of faith in going with Abram in chapter 12, and even some degree of faith in leaving Egypt, the land that had food, to go back to a famine-laden land of Canaan. So Lot's exercising some faith. Sarai as well. Trusting that God is who he says he is, as the creator, the redeemer, the one who's going to provide. But then we get into verse 2, and the focus is solely on Abram. And we're told Abram's rich. That's essentially the idea. But he journeys all the way back to Bethel. And we're already told in chapter 12 he was in Bethel before. And when he was in Bethel before, he built an altar there. And Abram's back in Bethel. And what does he do? Once he arrives back from Egypt and gets to Bethel, what Abram doesn't do is he doesn't say, God, why did you let me do that? I was so dumb. You let me be stupid. Why, 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 why? why?" We, We can tend to do that, can't we? And that's not what Abram does. What Abram does is we're told that he calls on the name of the Lord. And I, I, I mentioned a, a while back what that means. The, the phrase, call on the name of the Lord, is connected to faith. And it's also declaring who God is. That Abram is now worshiping the Lord. He's back in Canaan. He just took this major U-turn. But God taught him in the midst of this episode, and he's now worshiping the Lord. God is worthy of worship. He is who he says he is, so he's declaring the goodness of God, and he's trusting God. Now, by the way, Abram building an altar, Kaiki mentioned this at the beginning of the service, but Abram worshiping at this altar begins and ends this chapter. It's like a sandwich. And so everything in the middle of that sandwich should be understood through the idea of faith and worship. Anything that happens between the beginning of 13 and the end of 13, Abram is exercising trust in the Lord. He's worshiping the Lord here. And what we see here is that Abram's actions of faith, what I think we see here, at least in part, is that Abram's actions of faith in this chapter were actually developed by God through his faithlessness in Egypt. Isn't isn't that beautiful? I mentioned last week, when trials come into our life, God is not so much testing us in order to to say, give me A-plus material here. God is testing in order to remove impurities. He's, he's, I think of it this way, some of you have probably heard this illustration from me even, where you have a glass and it looks clear, but there's sediment in the bottom. And then God shakes it. What happens? The sediment comes up. That's what trials do. Sediment comes up, and then we're taking away some of the sediment. That's what happened in this trial in Egypt, which I think ought to encourage us so much, Christians, that when trials come into our life, God's design is to remove the sediment. And then we see an encouraging example of of Abram here. He's learned some from that experience. That God, God works all things together for our good, even our disobedience, even our faithlessness. And that's not a justification for more faithlessness. The point is, if he works it all together for good, he's actually increasing our faith and reliance on him. 
Now, I want to emphasize something special, I think, here as we continue to move on. But the main idea that I've given for this chapter says faith rests us in the Lord. And some of you grammarians are super annoyed with that. Why is that in the passive way? Wow. It should say faith rests in the Lord. Why did you put rests us? And I'm going to explain to you right now why I say that. Um, I want us to understand the personal nature of faith. Faith is not something that you can grab a hold of, touch, taste, feel. Faith, faith is, in, in one who believes the Lord, faith is something that is, that is compelled from the inside, but it leads to dependence, reliance, trust, uh, neediness, and, and, and fulfillment in God himself. That, that, that what we see is when we realize our weakness and our inability and our sin, and we realize God's goodness and God's grace and God's power, we lay ourselves onto the Lord. This gift of faith compels us to rest in him. And then we're actually able to rest in him. This reminds me of Jesus' words when he came to this earth and he said, Come to me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, I bring that up because was Abram very restful in the Egypt episode? No. He was tested with the, the trial of poverty, the famine, and he's, oh no, what am I going to do? And he goes outside of his circle of responsibility, right? And goes into the circle of concern. Okay, I got I to go to Egypt. And then he gets to Egypt. Oh no, I'm going to die. And the Pharaoh might kill me. So I got to figure that thing out. And, and it seemed like he had everything under control until, <laughs> oh no, he took my wife, right? Everything comes crashing down. I don't think Abram was very restful. Something dramatic has happened here in this text. There's poverty, there's difficulty. He's back in Canaan. But the Lord has made promises. And the Lord hasn't changed. God's always good. He's still good. And he's, he's able to rest in the Lord because God has given him that rest. It's not something that he can create or manipulate. It's something God gives. There is nothing like the safety you can know when you're in the Lord's arms, when you know you're in the Lord's arms. But you could still wonder, is Abram resting? Is Abram calm? Now, of course, I believe so, but I think we see that more in the next part of this chapter. We see that someone who trusts the Lord, Abram here, Abram really literally does trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, and befriend faithfulness. This is literally what we see here. He doesn't turn to fear or anger. He trusts. So faith rests us not merely in what our eyes can see. That's what we go on to uh, in these next few verses. So let's continue reading and just start with verses five through seven. And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great and they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. So I want to start with what can we see here? And, and, Strife 
is rising up. Okay, but why is there, why is there strife? In these verses, tensions are rising between Abram's herdsmen, Lot's herdsmen, and it's intriguing that Moses uses this word strife. This word strife shows up a couple of times in Genesis, but it also shows later up with the Israelites in the wilderness. Do you think that that's valuable to know when it shows up? Because who's the original audience of this book? The wandering Israelites, right? So the wandering Israelites, when they look at this word, and this word for strife is Meribah. So they see this word Meribah here, and I would imagine they're thinking about the time that God tested them in the wilderness because they didn't have water. So there's this trial of poverty for them too. We're going to die out here in the land. They test the Lord, but, but, the, but the word that's used here is strife. They're bringing strife into the situation. They argue with God instead of trusting God. And later on, in Psalm 95, 8 and 9, we're challenged on the basis of the situation with Israel. We're told this, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah. God named the area strife that they would always remember. As on the day of, at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. So, the Israelites, I think they're understanding this situation between Lot and Abram. This isn't good. Lot's people are causing strife for Abram. Who's the one who has the blessing? Abram? Lot's herdsmen clearly not embracing the blessing. They're causing strife in this kind of situation. But why? Why are they causing strife in the midst of this situation? It's because they're, they're trusting in what they see. And what do they see around them? This land has the Canaanites in it and the Perizzites. More than likely what that means is they had their own little city-states or the, the, the ruling in these walled areas. They were the ones that, that held the wells. And then you have Lot and Abram with all their stuff, and the herdsmen are saying, we can't, <sighs> we're not getting along here. And we don't know where we can go. We can't be together. It's too tense. But we should be understanding with this word strife, this isn't the right response. Strife is not the right response. Because I think these herdsmen, they're, they're not paying attention to what they can't see. And what can they not see? They can't see God's promises. But how are we supposed to live? Are we supposed to live leaning on our own understanding? Or are we supposed to live acknowledging God in all of our ways? Not a trick question. Our own understanding or God's? Which one? God's. Okay. Phew. Right? We know that. But that's not what they're doing. God's, God's promise is foundational to staying in Canaan. God's, if God didn't promise that, we know where Abram would go. I mean, he, even though God did promise, he didn't listen and he went to Egypt. So, but God's promise is foundational here. And what's his promise? We go back to chapter 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God's going to bless those who bless Abram. God is going to make Abram a great nation. And this land of Canaan, the land of famine, is the land where there's other people. And now even Lot is causing difficulty in this land. This idea of these promises is reiterated later on in this chapter as well. If, you, if you're open to chapter 13, just look to verses 15 and 16. God says, All the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. God's promises must always play an active role in our hearts and minds in the midst of our daily living. Do we get that? Always. They must play an active role. Otherwise, we're going to go simply on what our eyes can see. And when we go simply on what our eyes can see, we're going to jump from the circle of responsibility into the circle of God's responsibility. Right? The circle of anxiety. If we're going to trust the Lord, we have to have God's promises active in us to fight against the anxieties and fears that we face in this world. Because there are anxieties and fears we face in this world, right? Yeah? There's concerns that we look around. I, I asked this same question last week, but I mean, look not only at our government, look at the governments of the world. There's problems, to say the least. Yes? But if we must, we must, we must, we must keep God's promises. What we can't totally feel, we must keep them in our minds. And what we see from Abram is that I believe in this scenario, the promises were anchored in him. And he responds, what we can see, Abram's response is radical generosity. Lot's response is love of the world. This is what we see. Let's read verses 8 through 11 now. Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, then I will go to the right. If you take the right hand, then I'll go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. So what happens when we don't like how things are going uh, and we think we have a better way is strife rises up inside and oftentimes the inside comes outside, right? And affects other people, spilling into their lives. Strife rises up. We try to take control of the situation. I want to ask you something. Um, will you being in control I want you to ask yourself this question. Will you, being in control, truly and genuinely take away strife? 
I heard some no's. Other people? Will, will you being in control truly and genuinely take away the stripe? No. No, I've, man, I've learned that so many times. Then why do we keep doing it? I mean, we're so insistent where we think, if I just <gasps> grasp at the control, whoo, now I'm going to feel better. And it doesn't happen. We just keep grasping. Think of Abram in Egypt. His planning seemed to work for a while. His grasping for control seemed to work until it all came crashing down. That was his mentality in Egypt. Now, what's his mentality now? Strife rises up. And I think we see Abram trust the Lord and Lot lean on his own understanding. Abram wants the striving gone. This isn't okay. Just like the Lord wanted the striving gone with the Israelites. That's a good desire. So Abram says something. Abram says something I actually think is shocking. He says to Lot, is not the whole land before you? What? I'd be like, you rude little nephew. Get out of here. Who do you think you are? You think God blessed you? Leave. That's not what he says. Take it. Take it. Take whatever you want. No, wait, Abram, Abram, you got to make sure that you keep that land. Because like God said, you got to have that land. But you know, Abram's in this land and there's Canaanites and Perizzites. What's another person? What's another people group? God's got to take care of all of this. What Abram does know is that through him, all the nations are to be blessed. Lot ought to be blessed as well. And so he's been blessed to be a blessing. So you know what, Lot? Take it. It's almost like what Abram's doing is he's saying, you know what? Everybody can have this land, but God's going to still fulfill his promise. I'm, I'm going to trust that the Lord's going to fulfill his promise, even if Lot takes it. So go ahead, Lot. And Lot, instead of trusting the Lord, I think Lot leans on his own understanding. What Lot does is he's, he's at a high location in the land, and he looks over the land. And what he does um, is he, he sees what is beautiful, what appears to be the best. And Abram's willing to give this up. Remember, context famine in the land. Yeah? <laughs> what a gracious nephew. I'm going to take the area that has the food. See you later, Abram. And Abram's like, go ahead. What? That was not Abram in chapter 12, was it? No. It's totally different. It's like there's a different human being here. One commentator in talking about Abram's generosity and trust here is that an application to us is that Christians are to relinquish their rights in order to enrich others, trusting God's promises to provide. Abram, securing God, can give up his land. When we're securing Christ, we don't have to grasp greedily for possessions. Just log that in your mind, because I'm going to bring this up a little bit later. Lot's faith is tested. And Lot's faith is tested not so much through poverty, but his test is through prosperity, right? The, the testing comes because they have so much. 
And I don't know if you know this, but throughout the scriptures, oftentimes when you look at tests, it's either regarding poverty or prosperity. And many people fail the test of prosperity. And Lot, Lot clearly uh, shows his heart. He's at the high top, and it's descri- he describes it. Oh, man, it's like, it's like the garden of the Lord. No, 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 no. It's like Egypt. Mm. I'm not sure that's a good thing. And, and then we're told where it is, and we're told this was the area before Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed. Wait, why, why is that even mentioned here in this text? I, I think what Moses is doing, he's giving us like forewarning, foreboding message here. Mm, this is not good. So Lot, instead of, instead of looking at this strife coming amongst the herdsmen, instead of him saying, no, Abram, Let's seek the Lord together. Let's ask for wisdom on what to do. He says, okay, I'm going to leave you. And I'm going to go with what I think is the best place to go to. But it is true that Abram's the one who's blessed, right? And God says to bless Abram, if someone blesses Abram, God's going to bless them. If someone curses Abram, he's going to curse them, right? So Lot's leaving the blessing of the Lord. And that moves us into an aspect of what we can't see, but it's revealed. It's Lot's heart. Look at verses 11 through 13. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. Now Lot probably just thinks he's making the wise decision. This just makes the most sense. And from a worldly perspective, we would probably say the same thing. Seems wise. And I've tried to think in some ways, what would be a practical application of this kind of thing in our day? I think this holds up, this application I'm giving. It's kind of like the scenarios of people that I've known who um, they move to another area simply because they get a great job offer, but there is like no community of believers that will help them grow in grace. And they leave a community that helps them to grow, and then they move. And I might say something, you know, or somebody else might say, I, I think that's, you're going you're gonna to regret this. No, 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 it's exciting. It's going to be, mm, yeah, it's so good. I mean, I, I've got all these plans. Yeah, I know, but like no community of believers. And I've seen it in people over time. What did I do? Why did I make that decision? You know, Lot is leaving the spiritual nourishment. You know, he's leaving the community that God has blessed to just do his own thing. You can never justify, you can never justify sacrificing spiritual nourishment for worldly wisdom. It doesn't work. But just like Adam and Eve looked at the tree, saw it, and thought that it was good to eat, to make them wise, so Lot looks and sees, that's good to live. And I'll get food there. But then we see one phrase, one word, one word in this text that's like the death knell. This is, this is the word that actually reveals this was really wrong. Do you know what that word is? East. East. Because from the... From 
the beginning, after Adam and Eve sin, they're kicked out of the garden, they head east. And east shows up multiple occasions in Genesis to show wandering away from the Lord, going away from the presence of the Lord, going away from the Lord, going away. Lot heads away from the Lord. And then we move to these verses that show us what we can and cannot see, which is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abram. Lot leaves. Then what happens? Let's look at verse, uh, verses 14 through 18. Let's read that together. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and came and settled at the oaks of Mamre, which are at Hebron, and there he built an altar to the Lord. God makes the promise tangible to Abram. He not only states the promise again, but he takes Abram around the perimeter of the land, which was actually symbolic. In the ancient world, rulers would sometimes go around the parameter of the land that they ruled to signify, this is my land that I am ruling over. And so what God is doing with Abram, he's like, go around all this land, this This is your land that I'm promising to your offspring forever. So he's causing Abram to see, even though there's Canaanites and Perizzites there, even though Lot and his herdsmen just left, and now great, there's going to be tensions there, right? But God is saying to Abram, "Hmm, trust me, and look, I'm giving you your offspring, all of this, all of this. So he's, he's allowing Abram to see But at the same time, we know this promise involves a lot of what can't be seen, too. Because Abram doesn't actually get to rule, really, in the land, right? He doesn't see the promise come to fruition. And actually, we're told later in the scriptures that Abram knew, like, that's land, but I know that God is promising a land whose builder and maker is God. So there's something even greater than this. And that leads me to ask this question, how does this story of Abram point forward to Jesus and really bring application to us? We've got to move from Abram to the offspring of Abram, the serpent crusher. And so how does this point to Jesus? Because as I think about this narrative, I also recognize we're still waiting for the full fulfillment of the promise. We, I hope, you along with me await a city whose builder and maker is God. And we we are told in the scriptures, in Galatians, that we are Abraham's offspring. Did you know that? And we're told that we're Abraham's offspring because Jesus is the offspring. Like he is the seed of the woman, serpent crusher. And you say, okay, what does that mean? I've got these kind of puzzle pieces around. How does that attached to this text. Well, we see a radical generosity from Abram. He's essentially taken advantage of, right? By Lot. Lot takes all the good stuff. Abram, the mature one, so to speak, the one who has faith, he he loses out on the deal, to say it tritely. 
But Abram's actions, I think, point forward to Jesus himself who humbled himself by coming to this earth. He, the offspring of God, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, that the land belonged to him, right? The King of the Jews. He himself said, I could call 10,000 angels. Can you even imagine what that would have been like? Yikes. I could call 10,000 angels to get me off this cross and punish you all. But he didn't. He didn't. We're told by the Apostle Peter that instead of retaliating, Jesus entrusted himself to a faithful creator while doing good. That's an interesting statement. Wait, didn't we read from Psalm 37? Trust in the Lord and what? Do good. He entrusted himself to a faithful creator while doing good. Why didn't Jesus say, no, this is mine? No, no, no. He befriended faithfulness. He forsook wrath. Instead, he took the wrath that the sinners deserved. Jesus trusts, and in trusting, he sacrifices himself to the point of death. The striving of the people against him, he took that on himself. The sin and rebellion and the faithlessness, Jesus took the punishment on himself so that those rebels could be set free, that their hearts could be set free, so that they could worship the Lord and love him. You know, I think we tend to think that if we want glory, we got to fight for it. We have to look at what our eyes can see and fight for it. And yet, that's just trusting our sight. That's not trusting God. You say, whoa, 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 really? Give me a Bible verse. Wonderful. (laughs) Philippians 2. Have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus. He's talking to Christians. We are to have this mindset. What mindset? The mindset of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't live, he didn't live in such a way to say, whoa, whoa, I'm God. He laid it down. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. If you are a follower of Jesus, the Apostle Paul says, then this mindset must be yours. You must have the same mindset of Jesus. (laughs) Don't engage in the strife of the world. Don't fight strife with strife. Instead, humble yourself like Jesus humbled himself. Oh! I don't like that. Do we, do we naturally love that? I mean, I'm like, oh, I so want to defend me. I so want to defend myself. Have the mind of Christ. Well, that's not going to work. Hold on a second. If I act that way, you know, some people might say, that sounds awful because I'm just going to be a doormat for people. Was Abram a doormat to Lot? Was he? 
I mean, the world might have thought so. Lot might continue to take advantage of him. Was, was Jesus just a doormat to the world that crucified him? No. See, this is what God does. He takes what we think are upside-down ways, and he shows this is actually right-side-up. You think that's not going to work, but you're just thinking on what you can see. You're not thinking eternity. Are you really concerned for the souls of people and that they live forever, or just that you can have something right now? Have this mind amongst yourselves. And you know what? I find the early church, and when I say that, the, the, the Christians that were in the first, second, third century to be extremely encouraging and challenging in this regard. Because these, these Christians, they, they took Jesus' words literally here. When, when, when Paul would write, expecting, writing to the Romans, persecution's coming. And within, I think, a couple of years of Paul writing to the Romans, he dies under the Roman persecution. These Christians knew what Paul was saying. They're not just saying, hey, the world's going to say some jokes about you. The world's going to make some things difficult for you. He's like, they're going to they're kill you. How do we act in that? Well, in one season of immense persecution from the Roman government, there was a Christian by the name of Ignatius. Ignatius was a more well-known leader in the early church. He was sentenced, and it, it took a several-month journey to get to Rome. And so he's in bondage in the midst of the seven months tra traveling to Rome, and they allowed him to write letters. And we have, I think, many of the letters that he wrote while he was on his journey to Rome. One of the letters that he wrote uh, was to the church at Ephesus. And in writing to the church of Ephesus, Ephesus this amazing generosity, astounding trust, he says this. Pray continually for the rest of humankind as well, that they may find God, for there is in them hope of repentance. Therefore, allow them to be instructed by you, at least by your deeds. In response to their anger, be gentle. In response to their boast, be humble. In response to their slander, offer prayers. In response to their errors, be steadfast in the faith. In response to their cruelty, be civilized. Do not be eager to imitate them. Let us be eager to be imitators of our Lord. One historian that I read recently who shared this account, he actually wrote, from a historian's perspective, there is no logical reason that we can come to why the Christian church survived the first three centuries. When you look at it from a logical perspective, it should have been destroyed within those first three centuries. And yet, not only was it not destroyed, more and more and more and more people came to trust in Jesus Christ. More people were willing to give their lives for Christ. And even to this day, the church of Christ exists. It's such an upside-down way of thinking. But if we recognize, wait, God has called me to trust him. That's my responsibility. 
He'll take care of all of this. Lord, help me to trust. Help me to trust in the real, genuine sense so that I am so free, that I live so free of whatever anybody could do to me. Jesus has given us his mind. Trusting in the Lord leads to freedom, restful faith. And I would say that real freedom is being able to trust the Lord and simply live out your God-given responsibilities. True freedom is trusting the Lord, doing good, dwelling in the land, and befriending faithfulness. Abram's generosity and trust point to the Savior who's eternally generous and sacrificial. Lot's wandering warns us to not merely trust in what our eyes can see. So truly faith rests us in the Lord and not merely on what our eyes can see. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness, your grace. And I confess that there's no way, there's no way I can live this way unless you give the grace to do it. And so, Father, on behalf of my church family here, I plead that you would give us, not just give us faith, but give us more of the reality of our dependence on you and rest in depending on you. Oh, Father, we need you. And we thank you that we don't just have to grasp for the mind of Christ, but we're even told we have it. So by your spirit, grace us to live out this mind and to rejoice in your goodness, to be an encouragement to one another and a light to the world around us. Oh, Father, we look to you. You are our salvation and hope. May that be our true and genuine confession. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen.